messages in the movie. Is that really even possible? Can we look at Hollywood? Can we look to Hollywood as a source, a light of truth? I think there would be much debate on that one, uh, in whatever category it is. But one of the things I want us to understand about truth is that truth is truth no matter where you find it. Truth is truth no matter where you find it. Now, I'm not saying that there are, uh, that there's, um, how shall I say it, many ultimate sources of truth and that you can make up your truth wherever you want to make up your truth and find your source of truth. And, and, and No, I think that there is one channel of truth, but because God is God and God of the universe, He has set this world in motion and truth exists. Okay? Even to the atheist, truth exists. To, to the avid follower of Christ, truth exists. Now, they may not know the source of that truth. They may be disconnected from that source of truth, from that ultimate truth, but truth exists. And so there are times that I Let me give you an example of this. I think in all cultures of the world, killing innocent people would be wrong. All right? That, that is just in any culture of this world. You show me a culture where you can take innocent people and kill them, and, and I would say that that would be an absolute anomaly. Or honesty. Honesty, is that actually a value? That's absolutely a beautiful value, and I believe every culture of the world would value honesty and integrity as a, as, as a high mark virtue in anybody's life. Now, where do those come from? God was advocating those back in the Ten Commandments and long before. That was truth. All cultures can at least have a kernel of truth to them. So you take the Hollywood culture. Can it have truth? Can it discover truth? Can it expose truth? Can it speak to truth? I think to some degree, yes. Now, I'm not going to build my life on a Hollywood movie. But I might be able to look at a Hollywood movie and see something of value in it that maybe could help start a conversation with somebody who's far from God. If you think about it, Hollywood may drive home an important truth. or, Or here's this... Just we need to realize in our culture that we're all movie junkies. If we have a hundred, if we have our our free time on our hands, most Americans will spend. Well, I'll say forty percent of our free time that Americans will spend, they'll spend in front of a television. Now, I mean, out of all the all the possible leisure activities that we have, forty percent of our time we'll spend it in front of a television. So we are, as a culture, movie junkies. Our, our, our people, our friends who are far from God, they are also movie junkies. We, we, many people like movies and like television. It was interesting to find this week that Americans rent 6 million uh, videos daily, and they only check out 3 million books from the public library daily. What a, what a contrast. But, well, we just like our entertainment. We don't find a good amusement in a book. We find our amusement in a movie. A movies, again, it's one of those things that I think has a whole lot of part, a very big grip on our culture. I think also movies are able to grip us intellectually, emotionally at times to where we can identify with that. Now, here's, here's the bridge. Because we may have friends so far from God, and because we might actually be living in a relationship with God, that if we can start a conversation around a movie, 
and just about maybe something that was spin, spun in that movie or something that was touted in that movie or something that was criticized in that movie, whether we agree with the movie or not, then maybe we can begin a conversation with somebody who is far from God and begin to bridge that, 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 that gap, that distance, that gulf between them. So I think that the value of, of this series to, is not only to merely look for a message in the movie for my own personal life and how it may change my life, but I hope it will send you to the theaters this summer. As all the good movies come out in the summer and the Christmas times, it seems like, although I'm pretty disappointed this summer. Uh, but, I mean, you, you, you go to the movies and let it be a point of conversation. Let it be a point that you will look in for truth so that you can start a dialogue with somebody about that. This week's movie, Message in a Movie, you may have to look a little bit, but as soon as I saw it, even though there's some, some descriptives for Hancock that I would turn away from uh, and caution you against, uh, Hancock is one of those movies that when I saw it, I said, that movie has a message. That movie has a message because here's an individual who's a superhero who has superhuman powers. He's living in an earthly body. He's not wearing the cape and the, and the tight spandex suit or anything like that. But he is absolutely a superhero, but he doesn't even know it. Oh, he knows he's got the superhero powers, but he's actually taking these superhero powers, and he's a drunkard, he's a wino, he's a homeless person, he's a foul-mouthed individual. He's not exactly living the superhero life that he was intended to live. And I thought about that when I watched the movie. I thought, how many of us believers have superhuman, supernatural, divine qualities that God has instilled inside of us? But because we are missing it, because we're not on track with God, those superhuman, superhero powers that God may give us, we're absolutely clueless to. Take your Bibles we'll be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a, is, a, is a great passage for us to look at. And there's one statement that, uh, that, that I think it's in your notes. If it's not, I think it's worth just kind of remembering. When you think about church in Hollywood, that they're both two very powerful entities in our culture. Now, the church is being silenced and marginalized more and more we go along. But this is what uh, Dee Waller and Taylor said in their books, The Matrix of Meaning. He says, the church and Hollywood are two primal cultural markers. You can look at the Hollywood, you can look at Hollywood and you can look at the church and you can see that these are cultural markers. And so what I want again to do today and in this series is bring these two cultures together and hopefully begin that conversation and hopefully today even make you examine yourself. Who are you really? Are you that person who possesses supernatural power? given to you by God, Creator God, that we talked about last week? Do you possess that power to, to, to change lives and to influence people's lives and, and to speak peace and truth and love and faith and hope into people's lives, but we don't do it? Have we missed the mark? Who are we in this world? And I think Paul was dealing with that as he was dealing with the church of, uh, in 1 Corinthians. The church of Corinth was a church, I believe, that is probably out of all of the churches in the New Testament, I think the church at Corinth is the best picture of a North American 21st century church. Highly educated, highly affluent, but completely absorbed with themselves. Completely absorbed with themselves to the point that Christianity is not a lifestyle. It is more of a cultural fad. 
And so Paul steps in, speaks into the people's lives, and he challenges them to, to go beyond just that cultural fadness. And he begins to help them understand who they are. And so today, I hope today you can begin to understand who you are, and you will need to classify yourself, kind of how you fit into where you are in your life. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we're looking, beginning in verse 14. And I'm going to tell you some phrases there because he mentions in here three categories of people. The first one is in the very first words of verse 14. He says, but a natural man, that's the first one that we'll look at. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, which is the second man that we will deal with, the spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised uh, appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now skip on down to verse, or chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as a spiritual man, as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh. That's the third category. As men of the flesh, as the infants in Christ, I, have get, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able to. You are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not fleshly. Uh, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, and you are not mere men. Are you not mere men? Now, in this passage of Scripture, I think he mentions for us three different categories of people. And you're going to have to classify yourself, so let's jump into it. The first one that we look at is that there is that natural man. He refers to it as the natural man. I refer to it as the natural man. The natural man is the person whose life that does not understand or can wrap its arms around the spirituality of this world. All right? This is my understanding of a natural man. The natural man is the life that you are first born into. Every one of us is born a natural person. I'm a natural person. You're a natural person. We're all born into this. All the children over on this wing, all the children on this wing, they're all natural. We're all born that way. We're not born spiritually connected to God. There is a sin nature that is transferred from generation to generation we can't get away from. But now there is hope. Hope in Christ as we accept Christ, but we're not there yet. We'll, not, we'll go there in just a moment. I think what we need to focus on first is understanding what the natural man looks like. Because in verse 14, in the, uh, in the translation of the uh, New International Translation, it says the man is without the Spirit. He's a man without the Spirit. He's a person who hasn't been born twice. He's a person who has, does not have the Spirit of God in him. There are two reasons that these people uh, are, are not accepted or haven't accepted Christ. It says in verse 24, it says that, that, that they do not, that number one, they see this foolishness. They don't agree with Jesus. Look at, look at, uh, Look at verse 14 again. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And again, what it says in the NIV, it says they're without the Spirit. For they, for they are foolishness to him. They're foolishness to him. The reality is that a person who does not have a relationship with Christ is a person who's a very natural individual. They're, they're born 
They have flesh and blood just like us. They, they're normal people. They could be any good moral people. But when it comes to the things of God, it just is a bit confusing to them. In fact, they may even lob it out there as it's kind of foolishness. Jesus is good. Jesus is an option. But Jesus isn't the only option. It's foolishness to them. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being born, who are being saved, it's the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified as a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Again, he comes back and he uses the same word. Now, what's this word obsession that Paul has with foolishness? It's the same word we referred to a couple of weeks ago. It's the Greek word more, and it means moron. I think what we need to think about for just a moment is get somebody in your mind that you know that when they think about Christianity, they really just think it's for the wimps. They think it's for the morons. They think it's for the weak. They think it's a crutch. Why is that? They are natural people living in a natural world. They're like most of the people in this world. They don't see the need for Christ. It's foolishness. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of your Sunday morning. What could you be doing? You could be at the lake. You could be sleeping in. So many other things you could be doing on that day off. Why in the world would you go and worship God? Why in the world would you give money? Why, why in the world would you give your time? Why in the world would you teach children? There's so many other things you could do with your life. Foolishness to them. It's all foolishness. It's moronic to them. Those people are the natural people. Now the thing is, is that there may be even people in this room today who would qualify as a natural individual. Don't take that as an insult. You just are what you are. You, I, that's just who you were. It's very natural. It's very normal. It's what the society of this world is. It's those who are not followers of Christ. But they not only they not agree with Jesus, but they don't even understand Jesus when it comes down to it. Look at that verse again. He said, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. So again, when you start talking about heaven and hell, when you start talking about giving, when you talk, start talking about going on a mission trip and taking your vacation time and paying your way to go serve a village, why in the world would you do that? It doesn't make sense. They don't understand that. It's foolishness, but it's even beyond foolishness. They just they don't comprehend it. In fact, some will even fight and push back against it. And there have been very educated people who have done everything in their powers to try to diffuse and disarm and, and take away Christianity. And there's the, the great mind of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, if you, we're actually going to be looking at one of his movies in a couple of weeks, Narnia, uh, Prince Caspian. And if you think about C.S. Lewis, he's a great English thinker. He was, he was a professor at Cambridge in Oxford. But in his biography, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he tells his faith journey and how in his intellectual pursuits, in his intellectual understandings, he said there's no room for God. But as he continued to study and continued to think it through, he realized that there has to be a God. He realized that there was a God. And as he was literally riding on a bus up to Headington Hill, he said that's when he gave his life to Jesus. In all of his intellectualism, he could not understand it. He could not comprehend it. But he, he, he realized in faith he had to accept it. And if you're here today and you're trying to intellectually figure Jesus out and all the answers and all the nuances, 
guess what? You will only go so far with your intellectualism that ultimately you will have to take a step of faith. I'll tell you about another man named Josh McDowell. Again, a very intellectual man, very smart man, a man who went out in all of his efforts to disprove Christianity. He went out to disprove it. He, he studied textual criticism. He, he Archaeology. He studied history. He studied theology. He did everything he could to disprove Christianity. And in his efforts to disprove Christianity, he became a follower of Christ. As a person intellectually gets into this, it is foolishness. It is hard to understand as a natural individual. But as you get into it, you begin to say, you know what? There is some truth here. There is some validity here. I must accept it. And the Spirit of God uses that journey to draw them. One last example. I think it's the best example of our day. Strong mind again. Lee Strobel, a Yale-trained lawyer, became the legal affairs editor for the Chicago Tribune considered himself an atheist. And in that process, he had kind of already ruled out what Christianity is. In all of his intellectualism and all of his study, this is what he said. He says, God was merely a product of wishful thinking, of ancient mythology, and of primitive superstition. That was his summation of Christianity. He says, it's, it's weak, it's historically weak, it's unfounded, it's not worth following. It's kind of his conclusions. And that's what he had determined. That's what his wife was believing. Everything until in an autumn day in 1979 when his wife Leslie walked in the door and through a series of events she had given her life to following Jesus. At that point, Lee Strobel did not, as a lawyer would not, fall down on his knees and give his life immediately to following Jesus because Leslie, his wife, did. He went on a journey. He went on the same journey that, uh, that Josh McDowell went on. He went on a two-year journey to disprove Christianity and to bring his wife out of it. And in that process, he interviewed and he talked to 13 leading scholars and authorities on the area of faith and religion and Christianity. And at the end of it, Lee Strobel, highly educated, highly successful in his life, bowed his knee to Jesus Christ. I tell you these stories to say that it is not a natural acceptance to say that I need to give my life to following Jesus. Now you may say, it was easy for me. I grew up in it. But for a natural person who's lived a long life in a natural mind, it's not an easy journey. It's one that is difficult at times. Here's a life principle for you. It's not natural to be supernatural. It's not natural to be supernatural, staying the supernatural. Let's talk about the second life real quickly. The second life that we, that we could be living today is the supernatural life. Adrian Rogers says it like this, the natural man is born once and dies twice. The supernatural man is born twice but only dies once. And we understand something here that, that, that Jesus challenges us to live a supernatural life. Jesus calls us, He equips us with His Spirit to live a supernatural life. The thing is, is that many people who don't understand Jesus will never enter into that supernatural life. They will only live the natural on the perimeter of the supernatural. But God calls us to live supernaturally. Again, what does He say in verse 15? He says, But He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet He Himself is appraised by no one. For He has known the mind of the Lord, that He will instruct Him, but... We, well, who will know the mind of the Lord? He will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. There's something that happens inside of me. Something that happens inside of you. 
that should change our life and revolutionize our thinking. That no longer am I living my life as I want to. No longer is it just taming my thoughts and, and, and conditioning my life and just getting Mike to be a better person and turning over a few new leaves in my life. It's not that at all. It is a spiritual transformation. Jesus spoke of it like this. You've got to be born twice. You've got to be born twice. In John chapter in John chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Jesus answered, and I said, I tell you the truth, that no one will enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's born of water and of spirit. What's these two births? There's the natural birth. There's the water birth, that when a baby is born, obviously the water breaks and the baby is born. That's the, that's the water birth. The second birth is a spiritual birth. Nicodemus had a hard time with this. What am I supposed to do? Go back in, in, up into my mother and, and be born again? I'm a grown man. How can that happen? No, no, no. You're supposed to be born of the... Water and born of the Spirit. Have you been born of the Spirit? Do you have that kind of relationship with God that you can say that I have the mind of Christ? I am literally living with the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Romans 12, 2 says that do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our life processes and thought processes change when you become a believer. If you think your values don't change, you're wrong. If you think your perspectives don't change, you're wrong. If you think your priorities don't change, you're wrong. Life changes, minds changes, attitudes change. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? It's a question I've been wrestling in my mind for a week. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? And I think the best picture that I could give to having the mind of Christ would be something like this. Lori and I have been married for for 18 years, I think. Don't ask her. I'd say 17 or 18, and uh, and because uh, that made me look bad. But uh, anyway, it's 17 or 18 years in there. And uh, in that process of being married that long, there's one thing I know: when I walk in the house, if she's in a good mood or a bad mood. There's one thing she knows if I'm in a good mood or a bad mood. There's one thing I can know by merely her a glance. I only have to study her. I can just glance at her and see if she's giving me a nonverbal. All right? And so picking these things up, and then on top of that, I don't even have to see her to know what she likes and to know what she doesn't like. What has happened to my mind? I'm beginning to think like a girl. All right? I'm beginning to think and process things like my wife. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem in early marriages. Some couples never go the distance long enough, far enough, and go through the pain of that process to end up developing them because they want to hold on to their own identity, their own self, their own thoughts. And really, it's becoming immersed and transformed into thinking like each other. And then what do they say when you're old and you're living in Sarasota, Florida? They say, y'all look alike. Y'all even look alike. You think alike. You talk alike. You process alike. You know you become one flesh. You know what's supposed to happen to a life of a believer? They're supposed to have the mind of Christ. And if I'm not literally consciously thinking constantly about what is Christ, is Christ am I pleasing Christ with my life, and just living in this awesome relationship with Him, do I really have His mind? John chapter 16, verse 13 says, The Spirit of truth comes, and He will guide you into all truth. God wants to guide you as you have His mind, as you are thinking like He thinks. Then you're being transformed. 
you're living not only you're not living a natural life anymore where it was foolishness and it didn't make sense. Now you're living a supernatural life. Where you're literally thinking through life like him. You're spending your money like he would. You're you're living your life. You're living in your home. You're doing your job. You're living in relationship like God would. And that old WWJD thing I know is a highly marketed thing. What would Jesus do? Is absolutely the mind of Christ. And the sad part is, is that most of us might look at these two lives and say, okay, there's the natural and there's the supernatural, and that's all there is, Mike. And naturally, I would have said that. But there's another life, and I hope none of us are living this life, but I realize the reality is that you might live the supernatural life for a while, but you could very quickly step into the unnatural life, which is the third life. Paul says, I, I, I could not speak to you as spiritual men. Verse 1 of chapter 3. But as men of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you were not yet able to receive it indeed. Even now you're not able. Paul is frustrated here. He's like, whoa, you're not what you ought to be. You ought to be spiritual men and women, but you're not. You're just fleshly men and women. You're very unnatural. You, you've been born again, but you're not living like you're born again. You, you, you're not natural, but you're not supernatural. What are you? And so he kind of says, he says, listen, I couldn't come to you and talk to you about these deep things of God and, and the, the life-changing elements of God. I just got stuck. See, there's a battle that goes on inside of us. It's the battle of what's going to rule me, my flesh mind or my spiritual mind. And if we do not work in the battle every day, the flesh mind will rule us. And when the flesh rules us, we are in control. We are no longer in control of our life. The natural desires of our flesh come out. Romans 6, verse 15 and 19 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? No, by no means. I put this, I put this in human terms because you are weak and are natural, uh, weak to your natural selves. Weak to your natural selves. Are you strong? Are you living a supernatural life? Or are you living a weak life controlled by the sinful nature of the flesh? When this happens, it literally ruins our life. It ruins our spiritual walk. It hampers our witness. I think there are three results, and I'm going to give these to you so fast. Listen very carefully. Number one, there's delayed spirituality that comes out. He said, I should have been giving you meat, but I had to give you milk. I was teaching you, and you should have been teaching me. I can't tell you the number of people who have said to me, at times in my life in ministry, I didn't go to that church any longer, or I'm not going to be at your church any longer because I'm not getting fed. I've never had anybody leave the church saying, I'm going to leave the church because there's no place for me to minister. There's nowhere for me to serve. It's all about me. And see, we become delayed spiritually because it's all about what I want and what I can get. And I just want to, I just want to be fed in my own spiritual walk. Hebrews 5.12 says, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. You ought to be teachers, but yet you're being taught. A.W. Tozer says a great statement. He says, May not the inadequacy of much of our spiritual experience be traced back to the habit 
of skipping through the corridors of the kingdom like children in the marketplace, chattering about everything, but pausing to learn no true value, the true value of nothing. We come here week after week after week, but is it really changing our life? Are we a church of supernatural or are we a church of unnaturals? Well, we just come to be fed. We come to get and receive. It will delay us spiritually, but it will also be divisive corporately. Whenever you live like this, then, then there's division that comes into the ranks. When you live unnaturally, then you will be a divisive individual and sometimes with some kind of spiritual front to it. It says, For you are still, in verse 3, fleshly. For since, uh, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? See, there was no difference in them. They were actually very divisive in their words. Listen, you got a problem with somebody? Take the problem to the somebody. When we take our problems around that somebody and never to that somebody, then we are divisive individuals. And that is very unnatural. And it is not the way that God would have. An African proverb said it like this, when two elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. When we fight with one another, who really gets ahead? Who really hurts? Who's really... The damaged one. And see, an unnatural spirit, a person who's living unnaturally, is not living the supernatural life that we should live. I want to just close that. And I want us to be challenged today to think, man, if you'll come back up, if we'll think about our lives in the terms of And how we relate to God on a natural, supernatural, or unnatural level. And we're going to have a song that the band's going to sing. And you can sing with them if you want to. But if you're here tonight, today and, and literally you are living an unnatural life, or you're living a natural life, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you, you, the, all this Christian talk really is kind of foolishness to you. I'm going to say this section right here. Let this be the place where you come and say, Jesus Christ, I don't understand you. I can't fully understand you, but I want you. I want to give my life to you. Just come and kneel and just pray right here. and Let, let this be the, a point of transformation where you begin to have the mind of Christ.